1897, the New York Sun published perhaps the most famous editorial of all time. In response to a young girl, the New York Sun endeavored to answer the question about the existence of Santa Claus. Young Virginia O'Hallen wrote, I am eight years old. Some of my little friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Today, we will endeavor to answer this question, not merely to address the existence of Santa Claus, but an even deeper reality. What is the place for Santa Claus within the home? Is Santa Claus merely a benevolent, nocturnal, and mysterious visitor whom we should welcome with open arms? Or is there something more insidious and dangerous by letting this person secret himself into our homes? Should we make sure to lock up the doors and stuff up the chimneys in order to protect not just our homes, but our children from a seemingly benign mythology that has dangerous consequences? This is an episode for the parents. This is Into the Wardrobe. We're back. This is Stephanie, and we're going to talk today a little bit more about Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, and maybe the history behind it, and if we should teach our children this. Sometimes when we're as Christians in the Christmas season, we want to make sure with the, you know, quotation marks, war on Christmas, we don't lose the real meaning, which is Christ. So a lot of parents sometimes are very conscientious of if they should teach Santa Claus to their children. This is something that never really occurred to me until I was in seventh grade. My seventh grade teacher told us that she never taught her kids about Santa Claus or well, to change it, she, she taught them, but they didn't make a big deal out of it. Santa Claus was kind of like Mickey Mouse. It was a fun fictional thing that they did during Christmas, and some parents teach it as being real. And the reason they did is because they were concerned that when their kids did realize that Santa Claus was not real, it would be an earth-shaking thing. I remember my brother at the age of 12, we had to sit him down and tell him Santa Claus was not real. And it shook his world. He cried and he came in and he asked, Stephanie, Santa Claus is not real. Is this, is this true? And I remember telling him very sadly it wasn't. And I remember after that day of hearing this very long narrative from my seventh grade teacher, I was like, I'm not going to get my kids go through that. So I went home and I proudly announced at the age of 13 to my father that I was not teaching my kids about Santa Claus. And he looked at me. He said, you're stupid. You're taking away their magic. How dare you? And so to this day... I'm not really sure I go back and forth because it's just a wonderful thing to teach your kids. You get to, you know, kind of play it up. When I was younger, we would go home from church and my dad would say, oh, you just missed him. He just went up the fireplace. And I would stick my head and try to see him. And then some soot would come down I'm like his foot just hit something and it fell into my face. And I thought it was the coolest thing. But really, my imagination was just playing tricks on me. So I think a lot of Christian parents maybe dabble with this thing because they are scared of the fear of Christ being lost in this. When their kids find out, oh, we've been making this elaborate narrative of this fictional person, they're going to also ask, wait, is this holiday about Jesus also a fake thing? Additionally, we also lose the emphasis of St. Nicholas is the Christian believer. He slowly morphed through time into this jolly fat man with a big beard who rides around in the sky with reindeers. But the biggest thing that I think a lot of parents question is the, the reward and punishment concept of Santa Claus, where we reward children for their good behavior, but we also 
threaten to punish them with coal when they are bad and just the constant surveillance of children and their behavior and maybe the fear tactics behind it around Christmas. There are a lot of important points that you're bringing up there, Stephanie. And I think before we go any further, we really need to define our terms a little bit because there's a lot going on with this entire Santa Claus experience. And so we need to recognize that he transcends worlds, which is really what Into the Wardrobe has been about looking into and recognizing that there are kind of worlds within worlds. And there's a certain element of mystery that enchants the world in which we live. Well, with that in mind, I want to keep three terms kind of in the air as we talk. So the first term is history. A history, I'm just simply defining it as a story that matches real events that happened in the past. So this is the actual stuff that actually happened. As opposed to legend, which are non-historical stories um, that might help contribute to an overall meta-narrative. And so with that, I want to distinguish between that and mythology, and we talked about mythology before in the Star Wars episode. I'm going to revisit this briefly. So mythology is something called a meta-narrative in which meaning is communicated through a narrative structure. Now, remember, history is a narrative structure based on actual facts. Legend is a narrative structure based on non-historical facts. And so mythology can really draw from both of these things. So when we're talking about Santa Claus, we, I used earlier the term the Santa Claus mythology, recognizing that there are some actual historical things that are going on that we need to address. But clearly there has been an overlay of legends that have grown up over the years. And yet this greater meta narrative that emerges is something that does give meaning to our lives, particularly at this time of the year, not just for children, but even, uh, let's face it, adults get really drawn into this meta narrative as well. And the question is, is this a positive thing? Is it a negative thing? Well, we're going to have to wrestle with that. So let's talk first about what I'm going to call the primary mythology. Because actually, I'm also going to argue there's two different mythologies happening here, just to make it really complex. When I talk about the Santa Claus mythology, I'm talking North Pole, elves, milk and cookie, flying reindeer in the sleigh, hitting all the houses in the world all in one night. The typical story that the child's going to grow up hearing, you're going to have the overlay such as your father sending you looking up the chimney. My daughter loves to tell the story about when she heard Santa Claus arrive as a young child and she could hear him walking around on the roof. I was a dad who took my role quite seriously, I will say. Fortunately, there wasn't much ice that year. And the purpose of this primary mythology is that it reinforces the sense and wonderment and mystery for the child. And it really does this re-enchantment of the world. But then there's a secondary mythology, or what I like to call the shadow mythology. This is the behind-the-scenes one. And this is the one where once children either are informed, like your brother, I can't believe you outed him like that on a podcast, or they discover, the children are then initiated into this shadow mythology. They're still assured, at least in many cases, there really was a Santa Claus. He was the bishop of a place called Myra. Or maybe they're just assured, well, even if Santa isn't real, 
the spirit of Santa Claus and charity and giving, those are what's real and those are the things we're promoting. I think we all probably have some stories about when we first learned the truth. I I think I actually punched a kid in third grade for telling me that, which was a very Santa Claus thing to do, believe it or not. We'll get to that later in the episode. Learning about the primary myth of Santa really kind of invokes the death of childhood, or at least the beginning of that death. And it begins to initiate the child into adulthood on ever so small scale. Maybe if you're an older sibling, I'm assuming that once you knew the truth, you were actually contributing to the fun of your younger brother, maybe helping decorate or you caught glimpses of Santa Claus leaving. Now, this secondary shadow myth also has some purposes. Number one, it kind of mandates economic or commercial consumption, which is really good for the U.S. economy. We just celebrate Black Friday, and that's when all the stores are really starting to turn a profit. Now we're going to drive those profits way up, and Santa Claus is a big part of that. Secondarily, and this is kind of a sociological thing, it kind of validates those who are fiscally disenfranchised to live as though they're not. Parents, in a sense, don't have to justify not having money for these gifts that came from this mysterious benefactor. And so it can alleviate some of that social malaise whereby the haves and the have-nots are kind of brought to an even scale, at least for a short time. And then finally, it does reinforce the concept that those who were in power would be benevolent to those who are under their charge without any kind of reciprocity expected. Now, in medieval times, that may have been the wealthy landowners maybe being benevolent to the surface of the land. Now, in our modern society, it's the parents being benevolent to the children. So there's these two different mythologies that are operating, and we're going to have to wrestle with all this as we untangle what exactly we're supposed to do with this Santa Claus guy. So when we think of Santa Claus, we tend to think of the Tim Allen Santa Claus movie or the famous claymation of Santa Claus is coming to town or my personal favorite, the miracle on 34th Street, where he, depending on which version, he can speak many different languages or he can speak to the girl who is deaf with sign language. But that unfortunately is not the original character of St. Nicholas that has slowly evolved through American culture. So the famous St. Nicholas was a bishop of Myra and was born 275 A.D. and died right around 344 A.D. There's many different historical stories, but sometimes legend creeps in and we have to kind of ask ourselves what is historical fact and which one is legend. In the Lutheran Witness, Julie Stegemeyer wrote a fantastic article kind of talking about the real story of St. Nicholas. She talks about some historical facts. I'm going to go ahead and just quote some of the things from her article in there. He was orphaned as a teen and inherited a great deal of money from his wealthy parents. However, he did not use this well for himself. Instead, he gave much of his money to others. The most famous story of Nicholas' generosity is generally considered to be factual. There was an impoverished father who had three daughters. Being so poor, the father did not have money to pay the dowries of his girls. So the girls could not get married. In those days, a young woman could not simply go out and get a job. One of her few opportunities for employment was prostitution. So in order to save the girls from the terrible fate, Nicholas secretly donated enough money to the family so the girls would have money for their dowries and could get married. Other St. Nicholas stories that we have, maybe you have to question their how much of the legend versus factual. 
One of the ones that I really like is St. Nicholas had a dream and was told in this dream that a local innkeeper had imprisoned three boys and was hoping to store them in pickling barrels and then after that cook them into some form of food to sell to the people that were staying at the inn. So St. Nicholas goes in, finds three boys in the pickling barrels, brings them back to life, and then depending on the story, he either forgives the innkeeper or he beats the innkeeper up. I like that version because it kind of agrees with my views on the Bon Hafer episode, which if you haven't heard, go check it out because I rocked it. Another story of St. Nicholas is he flies, here we see maybe Santa Claus flying in his sleigh with reindeers to rescue some sailors during a storm and then he's able to calm the storm, which is very similar to our Jesus calming the storm in the Gospels. But going back to more factual stories, St. Nicholas was in prison for refusing to surrender scripture to Emperor Diocletian and worshiping him because at that time it was very much a push to have emperor worship. He was imprisoned by that, but thankfully in 313 AD, the Edict of Milan released him because Christianity was now legal to practice. And then also kind of a really interesting story that we have at the Council of Nicaea, which is where the Nicene Creed was um, written that we might recite every other Sunday in church is St. Nicholas and Arius got kind of into a fight over Christ's deity if he was only a man or if he was God himself incarnate. It didn't end very well. St. Nicholas actually ends up punching Arius out again, pro Bonhafer episode. He was in prison for assault, but The legend goes, Christ appeared to the bishops and said, no, he was defending my deity, it's okay. And they actually released St. Nicholas from prison. Well, Bonhoeffer or not, like I said, when I punched that poor kid in third grade, I mentioned it was very Santa Claus-like. So hopefully, Eric, if you're listening, I really am sorry. I, I feel bad. It's been bothering me for about 40 years. So we have some interesting stories uh, regarding the history of Santa Claus and going back to this historical person, uh, the Bishop of Myra, which is located in uh, modern-day Turkey. But the legends have grown over the years and have been coupled with this historical story traveling out from the Turkey area and, and kind of going across Europe and interacting with different pagan mythologies. For example, one of the possibilities of mingling the story of St. Nicholas with paganism is people are oftentimes familiar, particularly today, with the release of the Thor movie not too long ago, with Odin, who's the father of the Norse gods, the father of Thor. But really, uh, when you get into some of those Nordic mythologies, uh, oftentimes it's not Odin, but Woden is a more historically accurate way of looking at this. And Woden was worshipped with hay during the winter solstice. What's interesting here, and again, people are maybe making a little bit of historical conjecture, but this concept of uh, the Nordic cultures worshipping Woden with hay right around the solstice, getting combined with the Christians who are coming in, and they're saying, hey, this celebration that you have over here really matches something else we're doing with St. Nicholas. And so at least in the Dutch areas, you have Sinterklaas or or St. Claus, who also on December 6th are leaving hay in the wooden shoes. And the idea is you're leaving the hay for the reindeer to help feed them. That was a practice that we had in my home after I discovered this when I was young. And so on December 6th, 
we would leave the hay out and you'd come back the next day and in these little wooden Dutch shoes, there'd be like some gum or a couple of little trinkets or something, something fun to kind of get it going. Now, as I talk about Sinterklaas, I can't leave out one of my favorite characters. And it sounds like a really bad villain from some like early Hollywood movie, but Black Pete. Uh, I think is also probably connected to the pagan concept of Krampus. And essentially, he's kind of the cohort who will accompany Sinterklaas. Sinterklaas will actually threaten children who have been bad. Black Pete will just outright kind of like that innkeeper say, look, I'm going to kidnap you. I'm going to take you to a really bad place, and I won't be bringing you back till next Christmas. Sinterklaas then would rescue the children from Black Pete and uh, admonish them to do better. So again, we have this behavior control thing. But coming through that, we also have a little bit of the benevolence and forgiveness as these stories from within a Christian realm and the pagan mythologies are coming together. As this is happening, you have in Germany, the Christkindl, I believe I may have said that right. Stephanie, you're the one with the German roots. So I want you to talk a little bit about this. I'll, I'll, I'll say this much is my research was turning up. People are accusing Martin Luther of coming up with the Christkindl, who appears or comes on December 24th, supposedly because he wanted to do away with Saint Days. I don't think that's really very accurate. That doesn't sound exactly where Luther's coming from. But wanting to put the emphasis more on Jesus rather than one of the saints, that does actually sound very Lutheran. And perhaps this was even combined with some of the apocryphal stories that Luther's the one who invented the Christmas tree, or at least appropriated it from maybe some of earlier Druidic cultures. In past episodes, I've mentioned that my mom is from Germany. So when we started doing Germany in my household, we did learn about Chris Kindle. We didn't go into great detail, but every year my mom comes and visits my class and tells them about German Christmases. And Chris Kindle is a big part. Santa Claus is not really... He's a second character in Germany for Christmas, but the Chris Kindle actually translates to the Christ child. So as we're getting ready before Thanksgiving or after Thanksgiving and starting to put up our trees and our decorations and turning on the Christmas music, they are not doing that in Germany. They are not to decorate or do anything until December 24th, which is funny because my aunts look at our pictures on Facebook and they say, why are you already have your tree up and everything? But on the 24th, the children are usually sent out into the hallway. And the houses are usually built very differently where the houses all come off a main, high, um, a main hallway. And so they'll close the door and all the doors have foggy panes of glass. And the Christ child, air quotation marks, comes in and decorates the trees and puts out the presents. And when the kids come in, they see the Christ child has visited and everything has been decorated. When really it's the parents. So it's kind of the same idea as Santa Claus coming on the 24th, deliver the presents. But what I really like about this is it's refocusing on Christ doing these things versus a fictitious character that we have kind of cultivated into our own lives. My mom always tells the great story to my students of when she was younger and she made that transition to being the older sibling and now knew that really it was the parents decorating. She used to put a cloth over her head and she would flutter through the room and so that my uncle would see it through the window in the fog window and he would say, oh my gosh, it's the angels. The Christ child is here. So we still have the kind of playing with the younger siblings to keep the magic and the mysticism alive. And finally, we would be remiss to not make uh, the connection 
even further west in Europe to Father Christmas from Great Britain or Pierre Noel from France. And again, these are very similar to our more modern concepts of Santa Claus, perhaps without the flying reindeer, but still coming on sleighs pulled by horses and bringing the gifts for the children, etc. What gets really interesting is when the Santa Claus mythology makes the jump from Europe to the United States because there's actually more going on here than merely a transmission of cultural mythology. In fact, there is a bit of a game afoot. If you have ever uh, listened to the poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas," And there is this odd little section where St. Nick looks at the man who has been observing the wonderment and lays his finger aside his nose. There it is. That is an early American signal that I know a secret and you and I shall keep it between us. So now we get into the secret story of Santa Claus coming to America. So here's the secret. There really wasn't much Santa Claus celebration in early colonial America. In fact, not only is it true that the Puritans, for example, would have resisted these kind of celebrations, Santa Claus, Santa Claus, Father Christmas, whatever names you want to use, was pretty much just non-existent, actually. Rather, the entire month of December was one great big winter holiday. You're thinking about a primarily agrarian society where the crops have all been harvested, the ground is locked up as winter has come in, the beer has been fermented, and you're now able to get access to fresh meat from the wild game and so forth. You don't have to necessarily salt it and cure it in order to get it to survive because the cold weather will preserve it. So what you have is a bunch of people with lots of food, lots of liquor, and lots of time on their hands. So this really became a time of debauchery to some degree. Those of you who are familiar with your boar's heads and you love your wasslers. Well, the wasslers weren't quite so benign. These, these were, imagine, drunken fraternity boys who would go from house to house forcing their way in and demanding payment in the form of alcohol or, or something else before leaving and going and terrorizing the next house. So with all this craziness going on, there is a group of people who get together and they actually come up with a very complex and amazing plan to try to cultivate these winter festivals into something that is more A, family friendly and B, less socially destructive. And so a group, these group of men come together and you've probably heard of them if you're into the NBA at all. The Knickerbockers, uh, they call themselves, led by John Pintard, who had established other or helped establish other national holidays, such as Washington's birthday, Independence Day, and Columbus Day. And so his efforts at, at creating and legislating national holidays goes in one direction. He is joined by the famous author Washington Irving who uses some of his writings, particularly Bracebridge Hall, where he revisits the early Dutch traditions of Sinterklaas and reminds the people that here's a thing from the old world that we used to do and why have we gotten away from it? Throw along that, Clement Moore, 
the man who was familiar with uh, the poem mentioned earlier, A Visit from St. Nicholas, commonly called Twas the Night Before Christmas, because of its initial lines. And so uh, these three elements come together and in an amazing tapestry actually kind of reestablish and formalize the Christmas celebration that we've come to expect now, complete with trimmings and family gatherings and an orientation towards children rather than to ruffians out in the streets. Now, as things have continued along from the early 1800s, we're going to jump ahead to the next major shift in the Santa Claus mythology, what I like to call Santa Goes Pop. And that's a special call out to my Michigan friends, because in Michigan it's pop, not soda. And you have the Coke Santa. In 1931, Hayden Sundblom, a Michigan guy, is uh, contracted by Coke to design a Santa Claus for the sake of their marketing. And there's where we start getting that modern concept of Santa. Uh, Before this time, he was often depicted as wearing kind of a huntsman's clothes. He would be wearing green because he was more of a forest character. Here we get him in the bright red. Uh, We have him picking up the idea from Clement Moore and how Clement Moore described Santa And that common modern depiction of Santa Claus as the round man with the red suit and the boots and and the whole thing, swigging even a bottle of Coke after he delivers all the presents. This has become our modern version of Santa Claus from the man, the Bishop of Myra, to the modern day legend and mythology And so that takes us back to the question, should we be teaching our children that Santa Claus is a real aspect of Christmas, or are we possibly doing damage and lying to our children? So as Joe has kind of gone through the history of St. Nicholas slowly evolving into the current modern-day American Santa Claus, you do have to ask the question, do I want to introduce Santa Claus into my family and to my kids? That may seem like a silly, even though we've talked about it, but I'm still not really sure. I'm sure when I have kids, I will be able to weigh my choice a lot better, but let me go ahead and just present to you the reasons why some families choose not to teach Santa Claus, or maybe just to tell their kids it's a fun fictional thing that people do at Christmas time. The first overall thing is they fear that when kids learn that Santa has been this myth that parents have been kind of playing along with throughout their childhood, that they question the relevance of, is Christ really God? That's kind of the obvious one, but there are a lot of other things that go deeper than just that question. With the story of Santa Claus being taught, you have different pagan teachings to go with it, with Black Pete and Krampus, and it essentially overall kind of veils the Christian story that is around Christmas. Also, we want to make sure that we emphasize that St. Nicholas, who is the character that Santa Claus has slowly evolved into, was a Christian believer who gave charity. That's what he works on. But Santa really doesn't do that as much. It more focuses on the getting aspect than the giving aspect. But then we also keep going, Santa, which sounds kind of funny, But maybe true, he de-emphasizes the focus of the Christ child. Most of our students, they know who Santa is, but if you ask them the story of the nativity, they may or may not know it. That might seem like an outstretch, but 
as Joe pointed out to me when we were talking the other day, a lot of churches aren't open on Christmas morning because people are opening presents when the thing that they should be doing is going to church and maybe opening the presents before or after being German like me and opening them on Christmas Eve, which I loved as a child because I got to open them before anyone else did. But when we're doing that, we're also teaching our kids that good behavior results in rewards and bad behavior results in punishments, which really kind of deters from the entire meaning of Christmas, where we are receiving a gift of the Christ child who eventually will die for our sins is not something that we deserve. We are playing the are you on the nice list or the naughty list, and we're teaching our kids that they are being surveillance constantly throughout this entire season of I'm watching you, the elf on the shelf is watching you, Santa's little helpers are watching you, and if you're not behaving 100% of the time, you're not going to get gifts, which I think to an extent is not what the Christian message should be. We should be encouraging our children to act appropriately because that's what we're supposed to do. Lutherans especially teach we do good works because it's the right thing to do, not because we are trying to earn a reward in heaven. So I think that's the biggest thing is the whole essence of Santa and being on the nice list versus the naughty list. It kind of covers Christianity, but it also it's a dichotomy of the heart of what Christianity really is. So one might ask, why even bother do Santa at all? Am I just kind of stepping over boundaries? Am I just kind of stepping over boundaries that ought not be crossed? And I think there's another way to look at this as well as why maybe it's not totally inappropriate for Christians to have that fun celebration of Santa Claus. And the first one is recognizing that Santa, especially in America today, is a cultural celebration, not a religious celebration. And on one hand, we want to be careful about not blending the two, which is really hard given the fact that Santa is based on St. Nicholas, who was a martyr for the church. But if we do blend them, let's be intentional about blending them. For example, it's Christmas time, the house is decorated. And above the fireplace, I take down the regular picture uh, that we have there, and I put up a painting of Santa Claus bowing down at the manger with the Christ child in it. So that even the expressions of Santa do direct back to Jesus. We wrestled this when, when my children were young. Do we want to emphasize Santa? The first time we really took the kids to see Santa actually was at the world's largest Christmas store called Bronner's in Frankenmuth, Michigan. Now, if you're familiar, Frankenmuth was actually one of the original settlements, one of the original churches that made up the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, way back in the 1800s. And so it is a store that really does emphasize the nativity aspect. And so even when the kids went to see Santa there, the manger with the Christ child was right there with them in the picture, etc. And so I think there's a way that we can wrap the two together. Now, another thing that's really interesting about Santa, and this is, is something that would perhaps speak to missional concerns, is that Santa is really a culturally safe way to share the theological meaning of Christmas. Santa isn't going to get blocked out by the politically correct crowd as being a sharing of the Christmas story. And yet, because of its background, it really is hard to completely separate the two. If not a way of sharing Christ, which is the ultimate mission of the church, 
At the very least, this is a means of importing the Christian values inherent in the holiday, such as a charity, into our community. Now, this is going to sound trite, but the reality is celebrating Santa is fun for both children and parents. The children get the sense of magic and wonder when they come down the stairs and find the presents, and it's fun for the parents to really enjoy that sense of wonderment, to be a part of the mystery, and to have fun sneaking around and pulling things off without the kids realizing what's going on, or even sneaking up on the roof, stomping around, pretending to be the Santa Claus arriving. Now, another aspect that I would have to raise for people who are adamant against the use of Santa Claus in Christian homes is that if you are going to remove Santa Claus from your world because, oh, well, that might point people away from the truth of Jesus, I'm going to ask the question that's maybe unanswerable, but where and when do you draw the line? What other cultural expressions are you going to withdraw? Why is it Santa? Why not fill in the blank? Now, if you sweep away Santa, you might sweep away the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny, and and those are all kind of on the same level. But what about cultural heroes like Paul Bunyan, who may or may not have really been kind of based on a real person? Really, I think Christian freedom allows for participation in non-sinful cultural events. Now, Now, keep in mind again, Cultural events that aren't evoking sin. Santa Claus doesn't inherently do that. There are some elements that I think we need to be aware of, that we take precautions of as we invite Santa into our home, such as the greed and consumerism, such as being aware of what the difference is between the myth of Santa based on legend versus the myth of Jesus based on history. And by myth, remember, what we mean is a narrative that gives meaning to our existence. I think sometimes in America, we forget what our existence really is. In America, we are so driven by greed and consumerism that we forget to slow down and look at the wonderful gifts that we've been given. Joe and I have talked a little about the famous novel, Little Women. Um, One of our listeners Kimberly Rosam and I always watch it together, and it's just an absolutely fantastic movie. And if you are there familiar with the novel or the movie, there's this great example where all the March girls get together, and they're getting ready for Christmas. All the food's being laid out during the war, so they have very little. And the youngest girl's very happy because she has the warm rolls, and she's been waiting, and they even have butter. And these are all things that they haven't had for a long time because money is so sparingly. And then the mother comes in and says that she has met this impoverished family and she wants to give them the breakfast that they have prepared for Christmas morning. And at first, you know, you kind of see the, the, the glint in their eyes, you know, go out, but then they realize, no, this is something that they need to do. And even Amy, the youngest, grabs those rolls and she says, I'm so happy that you told us before we ate it. So we do see here charity overpowering greed. So when we talk about Santa, and it might sound like I'm very against Santa, where I keep going back and forth, So it is plausible to say that Santa does not necessarily progress greed, but maybe it's the overindulgence of gifts. I remember when I was younger, I would always call my aunt and uncle in Germany and ask them what they got for Christmas, and they would tell me, 
you know, like a book and some clothing and, you know, nothing really sounding off, but they were so thankful versus here I am opening, you know, 10, 15 gifts. And I was overindulged and I wasn't very happy with what I got, but they were very happy with the little things that they were given. So maybe we need to keep that in mind that the overindulgence of gifts might slowly teach that we expect those or we are deserving of them versus that's what they are. They are gifts and we aren't deserving of them. And again, I think it's fair to address the concern about children starting to question Jesus once they discover that Santa really is more legend than history. However, I think maybe that's pushing it too far. From my own experience, I never once thought to question the reality of Jesus once I found out that those presents under the tree were actually from my parents. Instead, I would argue that even children are capable of separating fantasy and fact. And to find out that Santa is fantasy doesn't necessarily undermine the reality of Jesus. Rather, I would argue there is a lot of good to be drawn from the Santa mythology. Uh, for example, there is an author by the name of Panay Restan who wrote in Christmas in America, a history uh, about the convergence of faith and cultural icon. Restan writes, by any account, Santa symbolized a miracle getting and giving forth his gifts in as mysterious a manner as Mary did hers. As believers struggled to retain a sense of spiritual wonder amid the rationalism of the modern world, they necessarily devised new codes and symbols to transfer the experience of faith to the next generation. Santa embodied the demands of faith itself. Children did not see him. They merely had to believe. In the words of William James, in the reality of the unseen. So, Stephanie, I'm going to argue that belief in Santa can be a training ground for belief in Christ. Properly wielded, the fantasy Santa myth points to the wonderment of the factual Christ myth. The world of Santa is a world of symbols. It is a world of grace and charity. No child earns his present by good behavior. If that were truly so, then Sinterklaas would never intervene in Black Pete's punishment. No. I'm going to say grace abounds. Because Santa forgives. Just as St. Nicholas is said to have pronounced forgiveness on that murderous innkeeper. In the end, it's not the historicity that becomes the final arbiter of what is accepted and forbidden. Christians beyond all others should know that, even as they cling appropriately to the historical events of the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. But there is something beyond history. There is a world of absolutes, a world of God's creation. In that world, there is room for more worlds, worlds in which lions talk, pilgrims progress, and Virgil comes to the aid of a weary traveler lost in a deep wood. What a great way to end it with episode 11. Episode 12 is going to be our last episode of this season. The entire series, we've been talking about where to find the eucatastrophe and things that we interact in. But episode 12 is going to really focus on what is the real eucatastrophe in our lives. If you have any extra time, we would love for you to jump onto our Facebook page or Instagram page. You can just search Into the Wardrobe Podcast and subscribe. We'd also love if you have a little more extra time to go on to iTunes or wherever you subscribe and leave us a review because all those reviews will slowly move us up and allow more people around us to listen and enjoy the show. Join us on this quest to discover the eucatastrophe hidden in the worlds around us as we explore life, imagination, and everything. Narnia is just one of the many worlds visited by Lewis's literary children. Who knows where we'll end up when we jump into the wardrobe. <laughs>